How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. If we human beings are, as many people believe, just the end result or the latest state of complete randomness, just particles coming together, eventually life forms and life follows this path that is essentially random as well. If that's all we are, what becomes of bioethics? That is, what becomes of how we treat human beings in medicine, at the beginning of life, at the end of life? It doesn't make for very good bioethics. There's no reason whatsoever to have any ethics if all we are is just random particles that happen to be the way we are. This is why we need a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of man to really do bioethics. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about a biblical anthropology and bioethics, Dr. Scott Stegemeyer. He's Associate Professor of Theology and Bioethics at Concordia University, Irvine, California, author of an essay for Dignitas titled Theological Anthropology for Bioethics. Scott, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. How do you respond to someone who says, look, we're Lutherans and Lutherans are people of the gospel. Why should we be interested in bioethics? Well, I certainly hear that a lot myself, teaching in a Lutheran university and being in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, a pastor here too. To me, that's kind of a dualism. We're not just souls inhabiting a body. We are a body-soul composite. That's what a human is. When I talk about bioethics, I talk about theological anthropology. You've got to know what a human being is according to the Christian faith. And what a human being is is not just a soul that we preach the gospel to and then the soul separates from the body at death and goes to heaven. End of story. That's not true. We are this beautiful, dual nature human being of body and spirit. So anyway, bioethics has to do with the life of the body. And it just seems to me that if we try to separate what's good for the soul and what's good for the body too much, then we fall into a kind of dualism. Now, another part of that is that we live on the earth. And God has created the earth. And the earth is good. And our bodily life is going to be eternally in some kind of a new heaven and new earth. And it just feels to me there's my intuition is that when we just focus on going to heaven when you die and that's all the christian message has to say that's really all the bible is about then we're missing out this very important part of the well the three articles of the creed creation redemption of our bodies and eternal life in the new creation really the simplest answer to that is because we love our neighbors there can be no such thing as christianity that does not love the neighbor to not love your neighbor is, is contradictory to what Christianity is because it's contradictory to what God is. There is no other way to be God than to be self-giving love. And there's no other way to be a Christian than to be in God, in Christ, and to be God's hands into the world. And that means to be self-giving love of our neighbor. 
And that includes care for them in the physical sense. I feel like we just tend to bifurcate or separate too sharply what's good for the spirit that is just preaching justification, you go to heaven. Obviously, that's what I preach every single time. I preach forgiveness of sins and the cross and justification. But those messages have effect on the whole person. And because we love our neighbor now and we care about what happens to them before death, therefore, things like bioethics and other ethical activity flow out of that naturally. What is bioethics? It originally comes from the word biomedical ethics. When I tell people that I teach bioethics, a lot of times people aren't familiar with that term. They know, they know ethics, usually. And so I just say, well, it has, it has to do with ethical behavior or moral behavior as it regards biology and medicine and healthcare. Now, usually people, if they kind of understand that, they're going to think I'm talking about abortion and euthanasia. And absolutely, that is, those are very important topics in bioethics. But it's not just that. Bioethics can include all sorts of reproductive medicine. It can include things like genetic engineering and testing on embryos, just a number of things. Of course, yes, a lot of bioethics circles around the beginning of life and the end of life. But it also has to do with what treatments and what kind of research can we do that honors the dignity of the human and gives glory to the creator, not just being utilitarians. There's a whole thrust in American ethics, including bioethics, to just be the ends justifies the means, and that's utilitarianism. And of course, there's room for that somewhere, but it's also Christian ethics is also about being consistent with reality as God gives it. We can't always predict the ends, but we trust the Creator to know where things are going and that He's good. To Christians, I say it has to do with how do we treat other people in the context of medical research, medicine, healthcare, things like that. Why do we need to, as you said before, understand what the human being is before we can answer bioethical questions? So when I speak about bioethics or write about it, I'll usually use the term theological anthropology. Now, in the church, theological anthropology is not the same thing as physical anthropology, which has to do with bones and artifacts, or cultural anthropology, which has to do with customs of different cultures. But theological anthropology is about, well, we might have called this the doctrine of man. What does it mean to be human according to the Word of God? And the Bible, of course, has a lot to say about that. And all of us are very interested in that. Every time you look in the mirror, you want to know what you are. You want to, you know, we care about what we are. You don't know how to treat something unless you know what it is and what its purpose is. Think of a tool. You know, I'm not very handy, so I might look at a socket wrench and not know what it's for. What is it designed for? What's its purpose or meaning? And so I might use it as a hammer and, or I might use it to try to slice bread or something. And it's not going to be very effective at that. It actually might cause more damage than, than benefit. So I need to know what a thing is in order to know how to look at it, how to regard it and how to maybe treat it or used. Same goes with humanity. God has created us with meaning and end in mind, a purpose. And we need to understand that in order to know how we can treat another human being. So that's how I feel like uh, anthropology, having a biblical Christian understanding of what it means to be human, it has to be, it, it's the foundation for knowing all sorts of ethical questions. Because if I think you are just atoms, right? Just a complex, unguided collection of atoms and energy, 
like a materialist would, then I'm going to treat you differently than I would, you know, than if I see you as someone created in the image and likeness of God, redeemed by the Son of God with the future of eternity in the new creation. That brings you up to a whole different level as a person. And that that is true of every human being, without exception. Maybe the mentally ill, homeless person that we might want to avoid, that person is a glorious, majestic being. We're corrupted by sin, of course, and not trying to deny that in the least. But that doesn't change the fact that we're humans. We don't become subhuman because of sin. And so anybody, right, without exception, even life in the womb. So I can look at those beings and see them as a being like me. And that means one who is died for by the blood of the Son of God and justified. And so with that in mind, it's definitely going to change and affect how I view that person, regard them, and what kinds of behaviors toward them are suitable. Why look for biblical anthropology in the Apostles' Creed? Well, that's what I've done in this article. So this article was written for a journal called Dignitas, which is primarily, it's a Christian journal, and it's primarily, I think its readership is probably primarily evangelical Christians who are pro-life. But conservative pro-life Christians, and anybody, I'm sure, has access and reads this journal. But I just want, as a Lutheran, I just wanted to try to introduce the Apostles' Creed and Luther's explanation of the Creed. First of all, I just thought it'd be kind of interesting to bring that out to maybe a readership that isn't super familiar with that. But bigger than that, the Apostles' Creed is just an excellent summary of the Christian faith. It's always been seen that way. That's how it's used. That's why it's associated with Christian baptism. And Luther recognizes the very helpfulness of the Apostles' Creed, which is why he includes it in his small catechism and why he writes these brief explanations of the three articles of the Creed. So I see in the three articles themselves, but also in Luther's explanations, all sorts of commentary on human life and God's redemptive mind and heart towards human life. That's where bioethics comes out of from from the perspective, uh, sort of a creedal or confessional Lutheran perspective, with the Bible as the chief authority. And all of the teachings in the Catechism do reflect accurately the teachings of Holy Scripture. So, so using the small Catechism is not in any way undermining the, the view of Sola Scriptura. But sometimes when you talk about these big topics, it's nice to have a structure. This, for me, can be a useful structure. Why do many regard Christianity as an oppressive, anti-human moral code? Well, that's where we can kind of contrast the Christian attitude towards what it means to be human and what a materialist view would be. So a materialist is someone that believes that there is no spirit or no God, or at least if there is, it has no relevance to us. So that's back to this idea of the universe and including human beings being really just a complex composite of matter, these atoms. And, you know, you can look at some great representatives or prominent representatives of this worldview, uh, someone like Francis Crick, who is part of the co-discoverer of the double helix form of DNA, and Richard Dawkins, very well-known new atheist who actually spends a lot of time criticizing religion, but Christianity seems to get a lot of animus from him, particularly. But when they talk about human life, and uh, you know, a couple of quotes there 
um, from them basically say that all you are is just matter. And, you know, Dawkins even goes so far as to say that we are purposeless. You know, so uh, just a real quick quote. He says that the universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, you can't tell me that that kind of a statement is not going to affect ethics. If there's no good or evil and everything is boils down to blind, pitiless indifference, well, then, then where does a transcendent universal moral behavior come from? Well, it can't. The Christian view is that, no, reality is not boiled down to blind, pitiless indifference, but that there is a God who is everywhere, who has loving intentions for all he has made and the peak of his creation being human beings. So the world basically will say, and by the world, I'm talking about a very specific group of people who are definitely atheists or materialists who would see really no meaning other than what meaning we create. And ultimately, that's going to come down to who's in power. How do you decide what meaning to go with if someone says this has meaning or this has meaning? Well, it's the one that can control the situation whose meaning or purpose or desire gets to be preeminent. So instead of a worldview that leads to nihilism and exploitation of the weak by the strong, which we have seen countless examples of in world history emerging out of atheism or materialism, such as Stalin, and etc. Instead of that, we have, say, the words of Martin Franzman in, in the hymn, where he says, O God, O Lord of heaven and earth, Thy living finger never wrote that life should be an aimless moat, a deathless drift from feudal birth. Okay, so that's not reality as it is and as we confess it as Christians. So all of that to say that worldview, the Christian understanding of reality is different enough, so different from just a strict materialist perspective that that is going to have incredible impact on how we think we can treat others. So turning to the creed we discussed before, in what way does the first article of the creed with God as creator reorient our anthropology? Well, for one thing, if you look at Martin Luther's explanation of the first article, right? So the first article of the creed is that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, in much conservative or traditional Christian discussion of creation today, we, we often focus so much on creationism versus Darwinianism and other forms of evolution. And that's appropriate. We, we really do need to address that intelligently, and we need to do it often. But that's not the only way to talk about creation. And it's actually not Luther's concern. I mean, he doesn't mention anything sort of like cosmos, the origin of the cosmos, although he certainly agrees that it would be God's action. There's no such thing as natural selection as the guide for human evolution, of course. But how he talks about creation in the, his explanation is he says, I believe that God has made me, okay? Not just God created everything, but he focuses on, I would say, like a pastoral element. God has made me. This is what the first article is talking about. I exist. This is what I am. And that God has given me everything that I am, my body, soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, reason, all my senses. But then that last part of the first paragraph of his explanation he says, and still takes care of them. And then a lot of the rest of it or the rest of the, his explanation is about how God gives us everything we need for the support of, and this is important, 
Luther says, he richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. And then it talks about how God defends us and protects us and guards me from all evil. And all this he does without any merit on my part. Okay, so that's how we are to look. A very important way we should look at the doctrine of creation and what happens. And this says something about anthropology, right? It says that God has, he's the source of every human being and that he loves every human being so much so that he continually gives to them and defends them. And that's where bioethics can come into play too, is defending. If you look at Luther's explanation of the fifth commandment, we are supposed to help and defend them and help them in every bodily need. So to be a Christian is not just focusing on the afterlife, right? It's about all of life, including earthly existence. But the doctrine of creation is not just about some past event. It's ongoing, right? God is continually bringing new life, and God is continuing to sustain with his loving hand. And we as Lutherans can bring in also the doctrine of vocation here, because in a very important sense, Human beings are the means by which God is continually sustaining and protecting and bringing new life into the world. You know, God could feed you just by making a frozen chicken appear, or turkey this time of year, appear in your refrigerator. But he doesn't normally do that, right? He doesn't normally send manna from heaven. Normally, God works through natural processes. He works through farmers and grocers. So we are the means, whether we believe it or not, we are, as humans, are God's masks or God's presence, in a sense, in the world to do what? To help bring about new life and to protect and serve each other. So the doctrine of creation is not just about a past thing that happened and we need to defend that against Darwin, but it is really also something that's continuing and it has to do with all of human life, including physical life, which would include medicine. So that's where I can see a connection from the first article to bioethics. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is our guest. We're talking about a biblical anthropology and bioethics. We will turn to the image of God next. How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest issues, etc., a journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online issues, etc., journal, issuesetc.org. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. In this wonderful month of thankfulness, we thought it would be a great time to say a huge thank you to Pastor Todd Wilkin, Jeff, and their team. For almost 10 years, they have opened their broadcasts to Ad Crucem and allowed us to share our products with their listeners. 
Thank you to Issues Etc. And thank you, dear listeners, for all your support and patronage over these years. God bless you from Ad Crucem. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. We're talking about a biblical anthropology and its implications for bioethics. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer, Associate Professor of Theology and Bioethics at Concordia University, Irvine, California, is our guest. Sticking with that first article of the Creed for a bit, how does the image of God form the foundation of a biblical anthropology? Well, the image of God, that phrase appears in Genesis and a couple times in Genesis. And the word likeness of God refers to, comes into play once in Genesis and once in the book of James. Uh, speaking of human beings, often in the New Testament, the word image of God or God's image or image is referring to the Son in Christ. But as far as it refers to human beings, there's not a ton of passages, but we don't need to understand God's teaching. We don't need a hundred verses. The two verses we have in Genesis are sufficient. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't give some kind of great explanation for what that term means. And so we just kind of have to take it on face value. And I don't think we should try to over-explain it, over-explain using whatever logic and so forth to try to over-explain or over-define it beyond what scripture says. So what we can say for sure, and the reason I'm giving this preface is because a lot of my Lutheran, our Lutheran listeners will, I'm sure, immediately say, well, our systematic theologians, prominent ones at least, many, have said that we have lost the image of God, that with the fall, we lose original righteousness. And if that's the full definition of what it means to be created in the image, then we have lost that. But we have it to be restored in Christ. But I'm not, I mean, there's other ways to look at it. And there are certainly Lutheran theologians who say, well, there can be a broader sense of that definition too. And I think later in Genesis after creation, uh, God says you can't kill people because of they are made in the image of God. Now, whether that means that they still retain the image of God or just creationally we bore the image of God is irrelevant ethically. We are in biblical sense identified with the image of God. And that elevates how we look at each other. That is of no other thing of God's creation. He creates, he creates, he creates the six days of creation. And he always says this is good. And of course, man is, is very good. And of no other thing, and I'm, I believe God loves the things he has made. I don't think he's indifferent to the physical world, the animals and the earth. But nothing else is identified as, as being in God's image. So the way Christians, I think, can agree is that this says something, or at least our creation says something, that human beings are special and unique and exceptional in all of the world, in all of creation. We're not just highly developed or fancy animals that can use tools. We're much more than that, much different from that. And this goes back to me saying, you got to know what a thing is before you know how it can be regarded or how you may treat it. And what a thing is, 
when you're looking in the mirror or when you're looking at your neighbor is the image of God in some sense being reflected back to you. And that means you're going to behave in a certain way. And John Kleinig, the Lutheran exegete, Old Testament scholar from Australia, he has written that to attack the image of God is in a indirect way an attack upon the king, right? To, to attack the image of the king is to attack the king or to try to deface the image of the king is blasphemous. So that is where ethics comes in. If I think that I can just experiment on you or exploit you for my purposes, either because you are poor or a different race or something like that, or if I think that I can feed it human fetuses and perform experiments on them, which destroys them in order to create medicines that help someone else, then I'm using those humans as means to ends. The vocation teaching says that God is using me to serve my neighbor. But the world will often say rather that I can use my neighbor to serve myself. And when we understand the kind of a secular word to talk about image might be dignity or human dignity. When we understand that there's something exceptional about a human being and all of the creation, all the cosmos, then that will definitely be an important factor for guiding our ethical behavior. You say that the first article of the creed teaches the goodness of the body. How so? Well, it's the first article, but it's also the second article. The first article tells us that the material world is pleasing to God. All right, the material world, and that includes our flesh, that includes our bodily nature. But it also, the first article, as Luther explains, it talks a lot about how God, again, continues to sustain our body, our life of the body. And so creation already starts to speak about the importance and the glory and the benefit and the meaning of humanity. But then in the second article, too, we talk about, we learn about the incarnation of the Son of God. The one eternal Son of God becomes one of us in every sense except for sin. Both those kinds of concepts tell us, tell us that the body is not intrinsically a hindrance or a hurdle. It's not a prison to escape. It's not somehow inconsistent with spiritual maturity. Not at all, because the son became a man, took on flesh. And if there's anything that would settle in the mind of a Christian, if there's anything that would settle the question of the goodness of the human body, it should be the incarnation. Now, you know, of course I recognize that all this goodness is, is in, a, in, a, in a horizontal sense, is badly marred and damaged and sometimes very hard to see. In a vertical sense, we have no goodness before God. Sin does not obliterate human nature. Therefore, we retain an important sense, and the incarnation helps to show that. The incarnation shows us that a human being fully what it means to be fully human, truly human, is something glorious. And then, of course, into the third article, it shows us that in the resurrection of the body, this continues, there's a continuity with our current life, and that we are destined for bodily glory, where there's no more sin or death. So you mentioned the second article, the creed there. Why is the Christology of that second article necessary to show us what it means to be truly human? There are many Christological heresies throughout church history that we are always kind of tempted toward or prone to. And there are some Christian heresies, if we operate with the, the biblical and Chalcedonian view of Christ, then we would say he has two natures and there's one person. And there's the divine nature and the human nature. 
And so some heresies will try to undermine the divinity of Christ. That, okay, he's really a man, but he's not God, at least not in the same sense that the Father is. And, okay, so that's one attack on our understanding and belief about Jesus. The other one would be try to undermine or de-emphasize or um, in some way uh, destabilize our understanding of Christ as truly human as a true man. And this goes back to the idea that by becoming a human, God is preaching the sermon that human nature is not bad. It's not inherently, as it's created and redeemed, it is not inherently evil or prone to interfere with our relationship with God. Now that, of course, is how we often experience it until the new creation is fully consummated. So understanding who Christ is, Christ not just reveals God to us, but he reveals us to ourselves. He shows us what a human being is. And, you know, as I mentioned in my article, none of us have ever seen, no one living has ever seen an uncorrupted human being because it's beyond, it's outside our experience since the fall. But Christ does show us that. Christ does show us what it looks like to be a human untethered and unpolluted by sinfulness. And so we look at Jesus, we know God in Jesus, but we also can learn a lot about ourselves by the humanity of Jesus. So that's why any kind of Christological doctrine that tries to undermine either of those natures does have the effect of altering what we think about ourselves and not just what we think about ourselves, but what we think about our future, our destiny. What are the anthropological implications of Christ's birth? Well, so when we talk about the Incarnation, we're going to talk about Bethlehem, or we're going to talk about Nazareth, right? So the Virgin conceives by the word of God spoken through the angel. So the Son of God is incarnate. He is conceived in the womb of the Virgin, unaffected by original sin, and then, of course, born in Bethlehem. Okay, so Christmas. The bioethics of Christmas, we might, we might even say. It shows us really once more that human beings are not innately uh, repulsive or disgusting or, or, you know, so there's often this idea in philosophy, and I think it's commonly felt too, that salvation means escape from the body. And this is also why I think when I talked about dualism before, in talking about justification as if it's only about the soul or implying that it's only about the soul and has no meaning for now, you know, there's the now and not yet, but if we focus only on the not yet, what's going to happen in the afterlife, we're not getting the whole story of what redemption does, right? It affects our right now. And so the incarnation of the Son of God is just a very powerful image that our bodies are not something to escape from or to despise. And this is part of the very complex relationship that Christians and others have towards the body. We tend to either, on the one hand, people will idolize their body and see bodily life and beauty and the ideals of physical appearance and ability as being the most important thing in the universe. And so we make an idol of the physical aspect of ourselves. But parallel to that is this disgust of the body. And that's why we feel like we have to alter it. We have to change it. We have to upgrade it. We have to mask it with whatever. And we're suspicious of it. And, and we're suspicious of natural God glorifying bodily functions too, such as sex. So this suspicion of the body, which is endemic amongst many Christians, I would argue that Christmas, while the incarnation definitely points us to the crucifixion, right? So our sins cannot be atoned for without the shedding of blood. And so the incarnation is about atonement 
in Christ atoning for all humans. But it also shows us that just simply being enfleshed elevates our human nature. And this is, in Chemnitz, I have a couple quotes of Martin Chemnitz in my article where he, he, he kind of goes into that. And he writes about that in his book on the two natures of Christ. He talks about how the joining of the divine nature, the interpenetration of the, of the sun with humanity, with the human nature, actually gives dignity to all humans. And then for those of us who are in Christ, our eternal destiny is in part described by Scripture as a participation or communion or koinonia with the divine nature. So while we, of course, talk about the spirit and the mind and whatever all that entails, we often will sort of, I feel like we divide human beings, and that's unnatural. And I think by doing that, we actually can become more tolerant or complacent when we see injustices against human earthly life. We're discussing a biblical anthropology and bioethics with Dr. Scott Stiegelmeyer, your link to issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri, and Grace Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota, for recently renewing their congregational sponsorship. Congregational sponsors are promoted on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. For more information, look for a one-page informational flyer on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Become an Issues Etc. church sponsor in 2024. When we come back, we'll talk about Christ's bodily resurrection and how it informs our anthropology. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. The grace of God, the church's music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church, that is. 5218 Neosho Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about a biblical anthropology and bioethics. Scott Stegemeyer is our guest. In about 10 minutes, we're going to join Chris Rosebro for This Week in Pop Christianity. We'll be talking about Apostle Catherine Crick's prophetic word, she says, for the whole church. Scott, how does Christ's bodily resurrection inform our anthropology? Well, we have a future, don't we? We have a place. We have a purpose. That's what I mean when I talk about telos. The Greek word telos is about, it says end. What is the end of man? End, not as in finality, but what is where are we going? So we, a lot of what we've been talking about, creation and incarnation, can say a lot to us about what we are. But the resurrection of Jesus shows us what we are going to be, what we will become. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples on Easter night... He's still very much the same bodily man that he was before. There's transformation in his resurrected self. 
but he still has flesh and blood. In fact, he makes a point of that when he's talking to the disciples. I'm not just a phantom. I'm not just a specter. But give me something to eat to show you that I am a human. I still have flesh. Touch me. Still bore the scars, which show a continuity between his body before death and after resurrection. So Jesus reveals to us in his bodily resurrection a lot about what our eternal state will look like. Now, if we want to try to speak very much about what it's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth and after the return of Christ, a lot of that's just going to be us speculating, right? Because we don't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics about will we be playing golf or fishing or will we just be in church all day or whatever. I think we can use good theology to make some deductions, but whatever our ongoing existence will look like, we know that it will be in the body. And so the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we are baptized, according to Romans 6, not just for the, the cleansing of our spirit, but we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is our resurrection. We are resurrected in his resurrection. And so your baptism is your Easter begun, which is fully consummated on the last day. Your baptism continues to work within you for the forgiveness of sins and sanctification, but also for your ultimate resurrection and glorification. So the teaching about Easter is not just about life after death. It's about bodily life, abundant bodily life after death and into eternity that way. So many have observed that it would be good for Christians more in their preaching at funerals and Easter and other times to remind Christians that we don't become angels when we die. We don't just exist in some kind of misty, cloudy way, but that bodily life, which will look a lot like our bodily life here, except without any impurities, is our future, is our telos. So the resurrection tells us what our future will be. What does Jesus' identification of his body with himself teach us about the body? That question goes back to what I was talking about when Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. Because, yeah, I mean, their assumption was, we presume, that they're seeing a ghost. And he immediately tries to change that attitude and that he is, no, that he's, even though he appeared to them through a locked door and did things that it seems like bodies naturally wouldn't do, but to show his humanity still, Again, he invites them to touch him. He reveals his scars to them. He still has the marks of the scars of his crucifixion. They no longer impair him. The scars are no longer sources of shame or impairment, but they're glorious trophies of what he has done and gone through and come out the other side. And so the actual wording that Jesus tells them is, touch me, touch my hands and side, and then you'll know it's me. And so he identifies his me Okay, that's his person, his identity with his flesh, his physicality, his embodiment. And all of this is just a very important way that we recapture, recover a true understanding of what it means to be human, body and spirit. Not only does this run counter to much of the world, which says that there's only body, but it can also run counter to the kind of Christianity, which is very suspicious of the body without biblical basis. So that's why he can, the importance of showing that it is actually, that his body is him. To touch his body is to touch the Son of God. It's true for us too, right? I mean, doctors don't just treat bones and flesh, they treat people. You know, another example is like if someone slaps your face, they're not just 
slapping your cheek, they're slapping you, they're bringing an insult to you. Same if they kiss you, they kiss you. It's not just lips touching. So the you, your personal identity, your body is the physical location of the person. And this is, I think, the holistic vision of what it means to be human. How does the third article of the Creed regarding, you say eschatology, the Holy Spirit's fulfilling the promises of the end times, how does that inform our anthropology? And the third article is about the Holy Spirit and in Luther's explanation. He talks about on the last day, he will raise me and all the dead, give eternal life to me and all believers. So almost the last word for the creed for Luther, almost the last word is our resurrection and the eternal life in bodily form. But in here too, you know, if, if the second article is talking about the atonement and our redemption and being bought out of slavery by the blood of Jesus, even though Luther doesn't use the word justification, we, as Lutherans, we kind of, I think, can, can see it here too, right? And the, the Holy Spirit calls me, gathers me, enlightens me, sanctifies me. It's that calling and gathering and enlightening, which is all-encompassing where justification, right? That's how we're reconciled to God is through his own declaration of our acquittal, our innocence because of the work of Jesus. And our justification is indispensable for understanding our eternity. When I talk about resurrection, or when we talk about new creation, we're talking about eschatology just being the fancy theologian's word for end times or last things. And eschatology is really everywhere in our faith. It's not just some final chapter of the book of doctrine, but it's that telos again, right? We know we have a goal, a purpose. So when we talk about justification, we're talking about God's reconciling of sinners to himself. And it is that justification which brings us into that unity with Christ and that sharing of his resurrection. These doctrines, I think, Christian doctrines should not, of course, we have to have separate chapters and sections of books or whatever, but it, it's very important for us to see them as not just distinct things. And so there's a lot of interrelationship there. So our justification, the atonement, our creation, the incarnation, none of that can stand on its own. Eschatology and our future is told in all those points of doctrine. You say that the Bible has a God-centered, grace-focused view of man. What do you mean by that? Well, this is especially important attitude for when we talk about any kind of ethics or bioethics, which is my specialty. Because very often ethics we think of in Christian moral teaching treat this as legalism, some sort of set of codes that we have to adhere to. And of course it is law. There are laws that God has given. He does command us to do certain things, and that's true. But if we just sort of put that out there, without the prior understanding of God, who is by essence love and his work. So let's look at the giving of the Ten Commandments. When God gives to Moses the, the Ten Commandments where he teaches us about how we shall live, he begins that. The verse at the beginning of that list is that I am the Lord your God, I brought you out of slavery. And so he begins with gospel. Before he starts talking about here's how you will live. He begins with our redemption, our salvation that he has done for us. So that's what I mean by grace-focused, God-centered and grace-focused, is that we have to let that be what drives our ethics. And the ethics is more than just sort of, here, do this, try harder, intensify your efforts, moral reform, political activism. It is about being what you are in Christ 
the ethics shows us what it means to be truly human. To know what it means to be truly human begins with God in his, whom image we are made and, uh, and what he does for us. And that the commandments are not just impersonal legislation, but that they're for our benefit and protection. What kind of bioethics then results from a biblical anthropology? It goes beyond legalism. And that's where we tend to slip, right? We tend to slip into just raw moralism. And, and this is at least, whether we are truly doing that, by we I mean Christians who are talking about ethics in the world, whether we are truly simply moralist, that is how the world hears it frequently. They hear the message, just this kind of, when I say dehumanizing before, modern culture sees self-rule or autonomy as the highest virtue. It's my body, my choice, right? Don't, don't put your values on me. But the Christian vision is that autonomy and self-rule is not the be-all and end-all, but rather we are made for God's purposes and to bring glory to him and to serve our neighbor. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is Associate Professor of Theology and Bioethics at Concordia University, Irvine, California. He's author of an essay for Dignitas titled Theological Anthropology for Bioethics. You can read it on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Scott, thanks. Uh, Thank you. When we come back, it's This Week in Pop Christianity. Apostle Catherine Crick has a prophetic word for the whole body of Christ, she says. Chris Rosebro will tell us what it really means. How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Risen Christ Lutheran Church in Arvada, Colorado, we have simply become captivated by the hilarious notion that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save the losers of this world. Losers just like us. We proclaim the biblical notion that God saves sinners. Embracing the historic liturgy of the church, we confess that we are just that, sinners. Visit us online at risenchristlutheran.org. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, Visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. 